How great it is to be with you this morning. Good to see old friends uh, and new faces as well. Joey, great to see you again, along with so many, Matt, Steve. Uh, just I would have to list uh, quite a few, so I won't. But uh, more exciting than all of that, for me at least, is to see God working in lives and to see that we're not in the same place we were before. Whether that's positive or negative, the good thing is we're under the sound of God's word this morning and he will speak to us. Not because I'm speaking, he'll speak to us and the first person that needs to respond to the word this morning is me. So I pray that we'll all have a heart ready to receive from God. Now, the other thing is this, God will communicate something to us. The only question is, are we going to listen? So I pray that we'll have hearts to receive. In addition to that, I, I want to just give you a little inside scoop because uh, as you prepare to speak, I don't know how those of you out there that, that preach do it necessarily, but for me, there, there's always, I can say the word always, there's always a deep working in my own life before ever it, it's like allowed freedom in the spirit to share with anyone else. And this particular man that we're going to look at this morning, who points us to Christ, the lessons in his life, I didn't say they're more powerful than anything else uh, that's come before in my life, but more practical, I cannot say there's a more practical illustration of a life for us to emulate than the one we're about to look at this morning. So when I say practicality, I need to also give you a few little instructions if you have a pen and if you have paper, I strongly encourage you to take notes. If you don't take notes, I encourage you to repeat over and over the six main points that we're going to look at, and I pray you'll remember them. Because what good is it if we simply hear God's word but don't respond? I would suggest the best thing for you to do if you're planning on just hearing God's word but not responding is to get up and leave right now. I'm not even joking you're just subject to responsibility before God for what you're about to hear. Why are we here? We're here because it's Sunday morning you're supposed to be, or are we here to let God change us? You also have a phone, you young people who don't bring necessarily a pen and paper, that's okay. Take notes on there. I will, I'll come look over your shoulder, make sure you're not on social media. Yes, I will, but keep that notepad open, turn your phone on airplane mode, and you're safe. It's all good. All right. The instructions are over. Now let's dive into the Word of God. Turn your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. And as you go there, uh, let's just kind of set the stage for what we're going to discuss. Now, I think if you saw on Terrell Rhodes' Instagram account, um, we called it Ordinary Faithfulness. And we'll look at it in this session, Lord willing, along with the next session. And it'll all be kind of combined as one message, but with a dividing point. So if you're not staying longer, don't worry, you'll get a conclusion. You just won't get the second conclusion, which will be very encouraging as well. I'm going to make a statement from the beginning, and the statement is key because we're going to keep coming back to it, but also if you just take away this statement, I think you'll find encouragement for your life. This has greatly been a blessing during my personal journey going through cancer, which by the way, cancer is such a blessing, but that we maybe we'll talk about later, but not right now. All right, so here's the statement. The circumstances in which you find yourself today are perfectly suited for you to fully glorify God. I'm going to say it again. The circumstances in which you find yourself today, your work, your family, your school, your inner emotions, 
The circumstances in which you find yourself today are perfectly suited for you to fully glorify God. That's where we begin when we come to 1 Kings chapter 19. We're going to look at a man who, if you want to debate this, debate it with someone else because I don't really even care about the debate, but many would say that this man performed more miracles than any other prophet in the Old Testament scriptures. You could argue that his life uh, is one of the clearest pictures of Jesus Christ, although we're not going to go into that today. There's a full series that, 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 that would show that later on, but not this passage. And yet we're going to find this man to be one of the greatest examples of ordinary faithfulness. I, I bet you, you rarely think about your life as being in the perfect situation to fully glorify God. We tend to think something should change or we compare ourselves to someone else. No, 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 you. So let's start there as we look at a glimpse into the calling of the man Elisha. 1 Kings chapter 19. We're going to focus in on verses 19 through 21. All the points are going to come out of those three verses. But for the sake of context, let's go all the way back up to verse 15 because Elisha is going to be briefly mentioned as God speaks to Elijah. That's a different guy. Verse 15. And the Lord said to him, Elijah, and I'm going to be annoying because when you get pronouns, I'm going to put Elijah and Elisha just so you know who's, who's being addressed, okay? Let's start over. Verse 15. And the Lord said to Elijah, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu the son of Nimshi you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. Verse 19. So, he, Elijah, departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen in front of him. And he, Elisha, was with the twelve. Elijah passed by him, Elisha, and cast his cloak upon him, Elisha. And he left the oxen, he being Elisha, and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you, Elijah. And he, Elijah, said to him, Elisha, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he Elisha returned from following him, Elijah, and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he, Elisha, arose and went after Elijah and assisted him, Elijah. God, as we open your word, we ask that you speak powerfully to us. I know you're going to speak because that has nothing to do with me that has to do with who you are and you promised a blessing from your word. But Lord, that's not all I'm asking for. I'm asking that you give us hearts to respond. And Lord, I'm asking very, very uh, specifically that if I say anything that's a distraction or if I say anything that's untrue, 
or even if I say anything simply unnecessary. Have mercy on everyone here and even on myself, and please just mute those words from our minds. But whatever is of you, embed it so heavily on our hearts that we would be uncomfortable and unable to resume life as normal until we fully respond to the word that you have spoken to us. And my final request, Lord, in this prayer is that when we leave those double doors in about 28 minutes, that only Jesus would get the glory. We pray this in that name. Amen. So we come to this passage, and again, I'm going to say six things, but these six things are all going to build off of each other. And and I believe that uh, one of the primary reasons that we don't necessarily see a lot of Elishas today in our 2019 context is because we have forgotten something that Elisha continually emphasizes in his ministry. Now, let me, let me, let me set the stage like this. If I asked you, and then this is rhetorical, it's a silent response, I'm not asking for you to like actually give me an answer here, but if I asked you, what is the one thing that God's looking for from you? The one thing. Because there really is only one thing that God's ultimately looking for. Everything falls under the canopy of this one thing. What is that one thing that God's looking for from you? Now, I would suggest it's probably pretty important if you're a follower of Jesus to know that one thing. Like, it's not that complicated. There's not like a lot of things. It's one thing. In fact, God says it like this. It is required in a steward that we be found a certain something. Like, this is what he's looking for. When we stand before the throne of God one day, there's one thing he's looking for. And the thing about that one thing is you have the opportunity for that one thing in the present circumstances in which you find yourself. That's why you can fully glorify God, because the circumstances you have right now are not the problem. Cancer is not a problem in my life. It's only a problem if it threatened what's of great value, but there's nothing of great value being threatened by cancer. Because there's one thing God's looking for, and cancer actually is a massive help. That's why I'm so thankful for this precious gift God's given. It's like, wow, thank you, Lord. I call it my friend. When people pray for healing, I say, please don't pray that too fast. I will genuinely, genuinely, and my wife knows I'm speaking the truth, be sad to see cancer go. You can ask me later why. What is the one thing God's looking for? Faithfulness. Faithfulness. Ordinary faithfulness. And there is no circumstance you have today where faithfulness is not a possibility. And so, the good news is this passage will give you the outline to faithful living. Very jumping off the page type of thing. So let's take a look at it. Beginning in verse 19, and we'll refer briefly back to what we read earlier, but in verse 19, we find Elisha. And where is Elisha? Well, actually, Elijah found Elisha. It says, found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. The first point I want you to make here is the ordinary. The ordinary. Just write down ordinary. The ordinary. This is the first stage that we find Elisha in, and that's where we all find ourselves in. The ordinary. What's your ordinary? Just simply, if you're taking notes, just start thinking through, what is my ordinary? When you get up in the morning, um, your practices of the morning, what your work looks like, what your studying looks like, what your relationships look like, just, it doesn't matter. I'm not saying good or bad or complicated or simple, just your ordinary. Whatever you do, we all have ordinary. 
That's your ordinary. What was Elisha's ordinary? He's plowing in this field, and he's got 12 yoke of oxen, and he's with the last one. There's three things I see about his ordinary, which I find very much connect with us. The first aspect of his ordinary is the place, the place he's at. Did you notice the name of it? Abel Meholah. We saw that a little earlier. That sounds like, well, it doesn't sound like it when you, when you read it in Hebrew, but if you know what it means in English, it's the dancing meadow. That's legitimately it. It's this breadbasket of Israel. Come join us in 2020 as we explore the land of Israel. October of 2020, I'll tell you, we're going to go right through Abel Mehola's area, and it is this beautiful, verde, green uh, man, it's where you want to live. It's where you want to place your subdivision. The Dancing Meadow, that's where he's from. He's from this gorgeous area, and he's living what seems to be a decent life, and we'll come to that in a bit. So, again, that's his place. Very normal, ordinary, great location for living. But not just place, there's something else here. Look at his position. His position. Well, his position in the family, we're not necessarily sure, but his dad's name is Shaphat. Whether that's his dad's name or title, I don't know, because uh, Shaphat actually means a judge. So I- I'm kind of thinking that maybe his dad is judge in the area, or maybe simply Shaphat's parents named him judge. But we see this with Moses. You know, Moses' father-in-law was Ruel, but he's called Jethro. Well, Jethro's not his name. Jethro is a title, meaning his excellence, all right? So maybe it's similar here. But his place, did you see his place is Abel Meholah, but his position, he's at the 12th, behind the 12th yoke of oxen. Now, I, I don't know how much you have practiced plowing with oxen or how much you've run a business with oxen, but oxen in that day, very valuable. In fact, you could kind of equate one ox to the value of a car that you might have. So imagine this dude has a 24-car garage. He's got 12 yokes of oxen. That's 24 oxen. He's pretty well off. I'm doubting any of you have more than eight cars. And if you do, you're probably the wealthiest person in this building right now. Well, you're only one-third the way to Elisha's accumulation of oxen. But not just that. He's behind the 12th. That indicates that he's actually not just a worker in the field. He's manager. He's boss. He's in charge. Now, you might want to debate that and say, ah, you're just, you're just saying that. Maybe he's just like the manager, but he's not actually the owner. He's not really the high. Dude, he burns these guys, these oxen at the end, all right? He better be in charge or he's in trouble with someone else. Elisha is boss. This is his position. We see his place. We see his position. This is his ordinary but something else about his ordinary that really stands out to me is his perspective. Like, just think about it. If you're plowing oxen, and you have 12 yoke of oxen, so 24 oxes in front of you, what are you seeing all day? You know what we're seeing. We're seeing the rear ends of oxen. Have you ever stared at the rear end of an ox? Okay, try it. It's not that thrilling, really. It's not a wonderful sense you don't buy those scents at your local perfumania. Like I'm telling you, it's not that pleasurable, but that is his ordinary. So we just set the stage realizing that this is his life. There's a scene in Les Miserables where Grantaire, he's one of the guys that's at the barricade um, before they're like going to die, and they're singing a song called Drink With Me. 
And you might remember, if you know the musical, there's a phrase that Grantaire sings, Will the world remember you when you fall? Could it be your death means nothing at all? Is your life just one more lie? I, I look out at each one of us, and I wonder, we all want significance, but could it be that we see our ordinary as a detriment, as an as a obstacle to what God's looking for? Or could we possibly realize that the ordinary in which you find yourself today is actually the perfect setting? Do you believe me? The perfect setting. I didn't say ideal. Perfect setting to stand before God and be found faithful. Perfect. Chances are, not many of you think of your life as the perfect setting for faithfulness. I'm telling you, it is. I didn't say God's going to keep you where you're at. He's not going to keep Elisha very long where he's at. But it started behind a plow. And your life is where you're at. So ordinary, number one, ordinary, but it doesn't stop at ordinary because what happens in the very next verse? Number two, opportunity. Opportunity arises in the ordinary. Let me tell you, your opportunities will always come in the ordinary. That's where they come because you'll be living your ordinary and the opportunity will arise. Now the opportunity that comes for Elisha, you're going to see that ultimately he's ready for it when it appears. There's There's a song in the Disney story, so book, movie, whatever version you're, you're thinking of here, there's a song in Beauty and the Beast. And uh, I think it's Lumiere that sings it. I, I'm, I don't think Cogsworth participates. Um, and it's in the middle of Be Our Guest. And in the middle of that, there's kind of like this monologue Lumiere goes into where he says, life is so unnerving for a servant who's not serving. Something about people to wait upon. Oh, those good old days when we were useful. Suddenly those good old days are gone. For 10 years we've been rusting, needing so much more than dusting, needing exercise, a chance to use our skills. But most days we just lay around the castle getting flabby, fat, and lazy, and then you walked in and oops-a-daisy. Okay, that whole part. But it caught my attention because what, 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 what's Lumiere saying? It's so unnerving to live a life that we were not created to live. And the problem is not the ordinary. The problem is lack of vision in the ordinary to see the opportunities. Because I guarantee you, and I guarantee you because of the way that God's allowed for faithfulness, I guarantee you based on his word that every single one of us, every single one of us have incredible opportunities today. But I wonder, are we even seeing them as opportunities? So let's look at what goes on here. It says that in verse 20, uh, well, let's go back to 19. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak or his mantle on him. So he comes, he takes his mantle, and he throws it on Elisha. Now, I don't know about you, but if someone just threw their jacket on me, that would just be weird. Today means nothing. So, Joey, if I come by and throw my jacket on you, it's probably because I'm just getting a little hot, and will you hang on to it? But there are three types of mantles in Scripture, or three types of mantles in that day, and these types of mantles meant different things. But Elisha would have known what Elijah's mantle meant. 
He knew that this was not just a mantle, but it was also a symbol of position. It was a symbol of authority. It was, it was a symbol of responsibility. And so when this mantle was thrown on him, I want to say that he rehearsed the moment beforehand because as soon as that mantle was thrown on him, Elisha was ready to respond. You see what it says. He immediately gets up and goes. And we'll come back to that. But here's my question for us, very, very specifically. Have you rehearsed the opportunities that God is giving and wants to give you in your ordinary life so that when it appears, you jump on it and you are totally ready to capture that moment and use it for God's glory? I'll explain what I mean by that. Uh, I, as, a, as a younger guy, I, my, all my dreams were in basketball, and some of you guys know that story, but I don't know how many times I rehearsed in my backyard over in Senegal the game-winning shot of the ACC tournament, and um, I would fluctuate between what team I was playing for that moment, but it would always be the countdown. I would get the pass. I'm the only one out in the yard playing. I'd get the pass with like about two seconds left. I'd have a guy right on me, and I would have to do a fadeaway three-pointer, and I'd do it as many times as it took till I made the shot every time, because I always had to go back into the house of winter. Um, but that being said, I rehearsed, rehearsed the moment. Later on, when I played for a team in the States, you know when the end of the game came, and we were in that little huddle before going out in the court with 10 seconds left? What do you think I said in the huddle? Coach, get me the ball. I'll make the shot. Now, I didn't mean I'd make the shot. I'm not saying that arrogantly. I'd probably miss the shot. But I would say, give me the ball. I want the shot. You know why I wanted the shot? Because I had already played that moment. I've rehearsed that moment over and over and over. I'm ready to take it. I wonder how often do we do that spiritually? My daughter's name is Haven Rahab. And if you want to know fully why we named her Rahab, well, well, first of all, why are not more girls named Rahab? Because God deemed out of every Gentile that's ever existed on planet Earth, he's like, oh, in Hebrews 11, why don't I just put man or woman? Let's just put one Gentile in there. Out of all the Gentiles, oh yeah, Rahab for sure. She stands alone, guys, and most of you are Gentiles. Rahab is the example of faith that God chose. And also in James, the brother of Jesus, Abraham and Rahab. You know why I named her Rahab, though? Maybe, maybe those are a couple reasons, but another one, people ask. Why did you name your daughter Rahab? Thank you for asking. I had a beautiful 20-minute meeting in the back of Delta Airlines the other day with four flight attendants as little Rahab stares with her big eyes at them, and they just listen to the gospel and the beautiful story of Rahab. Everyone destroyed around her except those who came under Rahab's roof for refuge. The gospel. But you know what? When those flight attendants asked, I'll guarantee you, I'd already rehearsed that so many times. I get so excited when someone asks, what's her name? <laughs> I know this moment it came because the ordinary brings opportunities and when the opportunity comes, we're ready for it. I want to ask you, are you ready for the opportunities in your ordinary because God is going to give you, get this, opportunities for patience. You know that person that annoys you so bad at work or that person that simply gets under your skin, under your own house? Oh, get ready for the opportunity because I'll tell you, when you're tempted to complain, that's the time to worship. Why? When that moment comes where they're getting under your skin, you know when love shows? Love shows when somebody else isn't showing love to you. You know when thankfulness shows? When the world doesn't expect to come out of your mouth. You know when, 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 when uh, l l let's say, joy shows? When the world expects you to be down and out. That's the opportunity. That's why cancer is great. The world expects me to be like, 
sad about having cancer? No, I got eternal life, and this has just made me more aware that I'm not here very long. And they start saying, well, hang on a second. Why? You see, there's opportunities in the ordinary. This is all great stuff. Your ordinary is not the problem, but are you rehearsing the opportunities? I love the fact that Elisha didn't have to think about it twice. He jumped up off those oxen, and he's like, this is what I've been wanting. Are you getting excited about tomorrow when, sorry for lack of be- better words, your boss is a jerk? Are you getting excited? Because the opportunity is coming. Are, are you excited for being irritated by your child and realizing, hang on, this is going to be an opportunity? Are you ready for something in your life not to work out the way you planned and be able to show grace and patience? Are you getting excited? Because the very things that you want to avoid are probably the very opportunities God is going to give you. So, Let me ask you the question. What mantle is being thrown on you? Good news, our God is patient. He'll probably let that mantle be thrown a few times, at least in my life. It usually isn't the first time the mantle's thrown that I realize there was a mantle over my head. All right, but that being said, let's move on simply because of the fact the clock is choosing not to stop. Um, I wish I had Joshua's ability to just pray and say, hey, sun stands still. I would definitely pray that over the clock right now. But moving on, Elijah's response here. with what does this have to do with me, by the way? Elijah's not being cruel to him. He's not being rude. It's more so saying, like, what does this have to do with it? Uh, because what does Elisha say? Elisha says, I'm going to go back, and I'm going to um, uh, say, let me kiss my father and mother, and then I will follow you. Let, let me say this, that Elisha was not going back to uh, compromise, because you know how Jesus says, you're not worthy of me if you, when it says, let the dead bury their own dead? That's not what Elisha said. He's not going back to compromise. He's going back to cut off, okay? And we'll come back to that in a minute. So the third thing is this. We have ordinary. We have opportunity. The third thing is obedience. Obedience. What does obedience look like? Verse 20. He left the oxen and ran. Don't you love that word run? That's great. He doesn't just see an opportunity. He has desired it and he goes after it full speed are we running after opportunities god gives but not just that he ran after elijah he says what he says and then he returns and does what he says he'll do i want you to notice that his obedience was immediate there are a lot of things we need to pray about but you know there's some things you don't need to pray about i just preached last week a message on when to stop praying And you know, one time to stop praying is when God's already said something. When God's already told you what to do in a situation, stop praying about it. There's no need. He'll just keep telling you the same thing. It's not that he doesn't care, and it's not that he won't repeat it, but, you know, I I see this on Facebook fairly often. You know, we have, like, a limited favorite verse collection. Don't worry, I'm not bringing up Jeremiah 29, 11 this time. That is one, but, like, another favorite verse that people have that I'm pretty convinced, that one, they don't read the verse before. This one, they don't read the verse after. Exodus 14, 14. Is uh, like, the Lord will fight the battle, you stand still. It's a great verse. But there is a verse 15. And verse 15, God's like, why are you praying? Stop it, get up and go. He's like, yeah, I- I'm going to give you victory, but you're going to walk through the Red Sea. You're going to trust me with massive walls of hydrogen and oxygen standing beside you. It's water, guys. Thank like, yeah, you're going you're gonna to have to take faith and walk across with a military coming behind, but I'll swallow them up. You see, the very thing that's causing you fear is actually the tool for your victory against your enemies. What's the point? 
The point is that so often we want to pray about obedience. Rehearse beforehand, I'm going to obey. When the moment comes, I'm going to obey. When the moment comes for me to think about complaining, God says he hates complaining. And when I complain, I'm boldly declaring to everybody that my God's not fully good. That's what complaining is. Every time you complain, you're saying, oh, just, I just want to remind you, my God's not fully good because this circumstance absolutely stinks. What if the circumstance is actually the opportunity in your ordinary to glorify him? Can we decide as followers of Jesus to go ahead and say, when that moment comes tomorrow morning, I'm just going to obey? Let's practice. Let's get ready. Make a flow chart or whatever you call them. Put down your ordinary. Put down the opportunities that might come up tomorrow. And put down what obedience looks like. Let's keep moving on, though. The, the next thing is the outright. The outright. And when I say the outright, this is uh, just saying there's no, there's no uh, hiding it. There's no half-heartedness of Elisha. In other words, everything Elisha does is very public. It doesn't mean that he's looking for a stage to stand on, but what it does mean is he's very obvious about his choice. You know that song that probably we all have sung many a time, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, right? And then the world behind me, the cross before me, though none go with me, still I will follow. But I want you to see that this idea of boldly declaring our confidence in God's word is what Elisha demonstrates. Three things here. One, he demonstrates this outright attitude with his family. He announces, I'm here to say goodbye. There's no half-heartedness about it. So in other words, when this opportunity meets his ordinary, he decides on obedience, but it's not just like, shh, 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 I guess I'll obey, Lord. It's very straightforward where everybody around him knows that obedience was the only option for Elisha because his God was worthy of everything. Not just with his family. He was outright with his finances, he left a good job. He left a very comfortable life. He left a very, let's say, non-risky situation for a life which had many uncertainties. He was obvious about his finances. I mean, not only that, he left his job. He burned his plow. He made sure there was no coming back. We'll come back to that in a minute. He was also outright about his future. Because when you burn the potential of returning to what you did before. He's saying, it's not that I'm going to return if this doesn't work out. I'm obeying God regardless of how it works out because the point is not what it appears to be. The point is faithfulness. See, okay, I, I, I see this oftentimes, and, and I'll give you an illustration in just a little while, but I see oftentimes this idea of, okay, somebody makes a decision to follow Christ, and then what happens? It looks like the wrong decision in all of our eyes. But maybe their financial system is, a situation is a disaster. Maybe they're called to go be a missionary in a far-off land, and nobody seems to be coming to Christ. And you know, the first people to start to doubt it, us as believers, we're like, wow, maybe they made a mistake. Maybe they missed something. In just a minute, I want to show you how every single one of us with that type of attitude would have discounted Elisha, the prophet who did more numerically, which is not the measure of faithfulness, but more than any other prophet. 
you're going to see in just a minute how, how true this is. But he was outright. So he's saying, God, I'm yours. And you glorify your name, but everybody else is going to know what you're, what you're doing. The, the next thing is this. Uh, there's an offering. And, and that's, that's, the tr- that's true about all of us. If you're going to follow God by obeying him in the opportunities of the ordinary in an outright manner, there will always be an offering. What's Elisha's offering? Elisha sacrifices these oxen, right? He feeds everybody. Uh, Hernan Cortez, back in the 1500s when he went uh, to... And I don't like using, by the way, these examples, because these examples, it's like, all right, we're talking about some conqueror who went in, and a bloody, mm, bloody bath, uh, he conquers these lands, and, you know, so it's a terrible example, but, but he did something which actually has a beautiful picture in it. He goes in there with, with his troops, and their odds of winning, and I don't remember the odds exactly, but it, it was over 1 in 7,000, okay, because they had very limited troops, and the boats they had brought over from, uh, I think it was Spain, but again, my history probably is quite flawed. You can look up the story yourself. So Hernan Cortez arrives with his troops, right? And the odds of winning are so low. So what's the first move that Hernan Cortez does? <laughs> he burns all his boats. He makes sure that his troops know there's no retreat. There's death or there's victory, but there's no other option. In other words, the first thing that happens is there's an offering. An offering that does not allow for any other option except obedience. And I wonder for us, and please listen closely to this question, do you have a plan B to obedience? In other words, if God doesn't work out, And I could walk out those doors and find a myriad of my friends who fall in this category where God did not work out for them. Well, let me tell you one thing. God's not going to work things out the way you want to work out because God's objective is not to have you rich. It's not to have you comfortable. It's not to give you an easy life. It's one thing which I go back to from the beginning. He wants you to be found faithful. This life is merely a taste of eternity in time reference. And this is a life to know him. But will you know him in the easy? No, if I want to know Christ as my comforter, I have to have something to comfort. If I want to know him as my healer, I have to be sick. If I want to know him as my salvation, I have to be lost. If I want to know him... Man, there's so many, but let me just throw this one. As my resurrection, I have to be dead. How often do I claim I want to know him But as soon as he gives me the opportunity to know him, I say, God, where are you? I'm going to go with plan B. When God answers your prayer, that's usually when you turn your back on him. Because frankly, we don't want to know God. We just want to use God. But with Elisha, he offers his sacrifice saying, I'm not going back. But let's end this because I've got three minutes. The sixth thing, and this is really, we're going to pick back up on this in the next, uh, in the next meeting. It's going to be encouraging. But the sixth thing, I don't know about you, but this is the part where most Americans, and I say Americans just because we're in America right now, okay? If I was in Senegal, I'd say Senegalese, so don't feel targeted. It's called humans. This is where most Americans get up and walk out and say, thank you, but no thank you. Faithfulness is for somebody else. You say, you're being melodramatic. Tell me I'm melodramatic in three minutes. What did Elisha go to do in verse 21? It says he left the life that he was living, and he went and he served 
Elijah. Okay, I don't think we realize the significance of this. Remember, Elisha, great prophet. Now, in 1 Kings chapter 20, you know how many times Elisha is mentioned? None. 1 Kings chapter 21, you know how many times Elisha is mentioned? None. 1 Kings chapter 22, you know how many times Elisha is mentioned? None. 2 Kings chapter 1, you know how many times Elisha is mentioned? None. Finally, in 2 Kings chapter 2, he reappears on the scene. But guess what? Elisha was there the whole time. And we find out in 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 1, what he was doing. You know what Elisha left a boss position to do? To become a butler. From boss to butler. He washed the hands of Elijah. That's what he did. No, no, no. No calling fire out of heaven. No seeing people repent. He washed the hands of Elijah. You know how long that period of time was? Based on the kings, between 14 to 18 years, Elisha washed the hands of Elijah. Okay, let me, let me, let me put reference on that. That means that God calls you, and for the next till 2037, nobody ever notices you. Nothing you do ever stands out. Maybe you go far off to Bhutan, you don't see one soul saved, but you're faithful. Maybe at your place of work, day in and day out, you refuse complaining, you refuse obnoxious attitudes, you simply show the love of Christ day in and day out, year after year, 2020, 2025, 2030, 2035, and finally in 2037, this moment comes. You see that the sixth point is obscurity. The journey is from ordinary to obscurity. It's not ordinary to excellence. It's not ordinary to popularity. God does not call you to be famous. He calls you to be faithful. And that is why we have so few in the church that simply walk as intimately as Christ invites them to. Because frankly, the closer that Christ gets to us, the more we push him away and say, that's not what I'm looking for. But what if faithfulness really is the objective? Because if it is, you have the perfect situation to fully glorify God today. And you might have 18 years of silence. But those 18 years of silence will just as much glorify God as what follows in Elisha's life. Why? Because God was never looking for Elisha to do anything. He was looking for Elisha to simply respond to him. Ordinary faithfulness. We're going to pick right back up where we're leaving off. But I want to leave you with a couple questions and then I'll close. I'm one minute over and I'm going to go two. My questions are these. What is your ordinary? And in that ordinary, what is it that you're not willing for God to change? Like, like, don't think about the things you are willing for him to change. Think about the things you're not willing for him to change. I don't know if Elisha was planning on that day having a mantle thrown on him. But I just wonder, how embedded are we into life as we know it? I was talking to somebody yesterday who was just like, I absolutely will never leave New Jersey. Now, dear friends, and he wasn't saying it in a disobedience to the spirit kind of way, but it got me thinking. Do you have any nevers in your life when it comes to the Lord? 
Because the opportunities of eternity will appear in the everyday ordinary of time. Do you want a polished monument that man builds for you after you die? Or do you want a life poured out on the altar of God's glory during the few days you live on earth? In the last eight weeks, I've had a 30-year-old friend die suddenly, fell asleep at the wheel after his late night shift at 2 p.m., very near you guys, crashed into a tree and died on the spot. Three weeks later, I had another dear friend have a seizure, sudden death seizure, cardiac arrest, died, did his funeral in Vancouver. Two weeks ago, I had a six-year-old friend, a swing set, collapsed, crushed her in the chest, and she died. Life is short. You can live for that polished monument, but it's going to be pretty, pretty disappointing. But the good news is this. Today, you have an ordinary. Today, you have an opportunity in the ordinary. Will you choose obedience in the opportunity of the ordinary? Will you be outright about obedience in the opportunities of the ordinary? Will you offer what God wants you to offer? And remember, probably no one's going to notice you're going to go into further obscurity. You'll be further forgotten. But that's good news. Because that's just one more thing you get to offer the Lord Jesus for his glory and his alone. Let's pray. Father, I want to say thank you because all of this is only possible in the gospel. If it weren't for Jesus Christ who came and loved us with an everlasting love, who purchased our redemption through his blood, through his death on Calvary, through conquering the grave, there's no way I would want this life. But I've been loved by a Savior. I've been loved with a love which will never go away. I've been loved with a love that promises me an inheritance which is incorruptible and undefiled and that which fades not away. It's reserved in heaven for me. God, thank you for the gospel, the gospel that reminds me that it's worth it. And it will be worth it all when I see Jesus. Oh, life's trials in the ordinary will seem so small when I see Christ. I just pray that this morning we, like Elisha, as we stand behind the oxen in which we plow in our Abel Mehola of New Jersey, I pray that we might rehearse the mantles which you're throwing our way and know that as that mantle hits our shoulders, it's a call not to greatness, but a call to faithfulness. And may we be the first to outrightly respond in obedience. We pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen.